A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. Thanks, Elena. That was great. Uh, so good morning. Uh, good, wait, let's try that again. Hold on. Good morning. You, wait, you out there? Good. Uh, listen, I, I, I should say at the beginning, my name's Drew, uh, and because it's Easter Sunday and you're the second service, I have high expectations of you this morning. I need you to be a little more feisty than you normally are. We should be smiling a little more widely than we normally are. You could hear it even in the songs we sing, right? How they started kind of soft and slow, but then they build towards the, uh, the reality of, of the resurrection. And so that's kind of our lives this morning. So it's good to be here with you uh, this morning. We look forward to the time we have together. The other thing I wanted to say is, Jonathan prayed for church plants that are happening. You, many of you know, uh, Redeemer uh, New York City, Tim Keller's church, is a church that we've really modeled ourselves after in many ways, but in obviously a very different context than Manhattan. Um, but one of the neat things uh, that's going on there that I just rejoice in and that also I think is a forward-thinking uh, and praying thing for us as well is uh, they are launching a new church this morning. It happens to be Michael Keller, who's Tim's son, who's planting the first kind of second-generation church. I mean, it's the, the second generation of people in that church-planting movement that are starting to plant churches. So I would just say I never miss the opportunity to say I wonder which teenager in the room today uh, in 10 or 15 years we will be rejoicing that they're planting a church. That's our hope. And so God is good. He, his, his kingdom is moving forward, uh, both in Manhattan and in Winter Haven, and we rejoice in that. Amen? And so let's be clear as we come to our text this morning. Let's be very clear about what we're here to celebrate. Christians believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Not just a man, the God-man, that he lived a perfect life life of perfect obedience to the Father. He died upon a Roman cross, not as an enemy of the state, but as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that he was buried, 
in the grave for three days, but we believe that on the third day he was raised to life. We be- See, I'm already, you're already, come on, you with me? That's good news, right? That is good news. We believe in his bodily resurrection. We believe in his ascension into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. From heaven he has sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, into the world and upon his people to comfort and to empower us to continue his mission in the world until he comes again at the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. That is the Christian gospel. And that's what we're here to celebrate. But it all hinges upon resurrection. The Bible calls the resurrection of Jesus God's vindication of him, 1 Timothy 3.16. It is the proof, according to Paul in Acts 17, or the assurance that God has furnished to all men of the truth of the gospel. In other words, if Jesus is still in the grave, if the resurrection was a hoax, if none of it is true, then he was a liar and a criminal, as the Romans claimed, or he was a lunatic and a blasphemer, as the Jews claim, but if he is alive, if the resurrection is indeed true, then he is nothing other than the resurrection and the life. He is the bread of heaven, he is the light of the world, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we have a decision to make, every one of us, believer, skeptic, agnostic, atheist, whatever, whatever label you would put on yourself this morning, if the resurrection is a lie then Christianity is false and therefore of no importance. But if the resurrection is true, then Christianity is true and therefore of infinite importance. The one thing it can't be is moderately important. Christianity, it doesn't give you that option. Jesus doesn't give us that option. Christianity can't just be moderately important. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. And yet, yet you know, as a pastor, I see all the time how both religious and irreligious people do this. There are those who call themselves Christians, but then don't live as if the resurrection is true. They live instead as if this world is all there is. They go about trying to store up for themselves treasures on this earth, contrary to how Jesus taught us to teach, and then there are taught us to live. And then there are irreligious people who don't believe, but strangely are not comfortable with their unbelief. Our culture, to borrow a phrase from Jamie Smith, is full of people who don't believe in God, but they miss Him terribly. We don't believe any longer as a culture, but we miss Him. And maybe that's you. You're committed to a materialistic view of the world, that this world is all there is, but for whatever reason, you're not comfortable with all of the implications of that worldview. And, and, and I see you. I see you keep trying to sneak religion in the back door. You co-opt parts of Christianity that you like and leave out the parts that you don't. And I would say to you as a friend, this is what I would say to all of us, believer and unbeliever alike, if there is no resurrection, then don't pay anything, don't pay any attention to anything I say this morning. If there is no resurrection, don't pay any, any attention to anything in Christianity. But if the resurrection is true, you can't pick and choose. It's all or nothing. Those are really the options. Go all in or fold and go home. The only two options. And that really is the way 1 Corinthians 15 is laid out. Paul is making an argument uh, along those lines. So if you look there with the text, he's showing us the logic behind two options. He's saying, if there's no resurrection, then, then what? Then what are the implications of that belief? What are the implications of that worldview? 
But then secondly, if there is a resurrection, if, there, if res- resurrection is true, then there are implications for that too. And so what of that? And so he's going to really force us into these, to, you know, to these two options that we have to choose from. But then in the end, what he's going to say, he's going to make an argument ultimately that in fact, Christ has been raised. And that's what we're here to celebrate this morning. That we are not left to waver, but we believe, and we've come here this morning because we believe in fact Christ has been raised. But we want to follow the argument along and we want to think out the implications because no matter where we are on the spectrum of, of belief or, or faith you know, versus doubt, we have some work to do here in, in thinking about our own hearts. And so let's just start then where Paul starts at the very beginning of the text that, that Elena read to us a minute ago. And that is he's saying if there is no resurrection, then there's some implications of that belief. If you, re- if you really are committed to a, a materialistic view of the world, if you really believe that this resurrection stuff is nonsense then have the courage of your, of your faith. Have the courage of your convictions and realize their implications. So what are those? Well, I have three. Three implications of no resurrection according to Paul here. And they're just here in the text. We'll begin in verse 14 where Paul says, first, if there is no resurrection, then we have to admit that all of life is vain. If Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. All of all life is in vain. And that word means empty. If Christ has not been raised, then this world is all there is. And in that case, life is empty. Paul goes on later in the text. We didn't print this part. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He means, if there's nothing beyond this world, then there's no use messing with concepts like morality or justice. There's no need to live sacrificially towards other people. Don't bother with being involved in the world. Political activism is a complete waste of time. You should spend your life doing one thing. Enjoy as many of the pleasures you can find in in the few years that you have, that you've got here, because after it's over, it's over, and there's nothing else. Now, hardly anybody who ascribes to a materialistic view of the world has the courage to embrace the implications of that belief. They want to have one foot in and one foot out. If there is no resurrection, then there is no God. And if there is no God, then in the words of one um, philosopher and scholar, I'll just read his words, if there is no God, then we are adrift in an absurd world. And all of our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for our death. That's it. That's all that's left. But you see, what's great, our catechism begins, at the very, in the very first question, begins with the idea that there is a chief end of man, right? What is the chief end of man? That there is a chief end, that there is a transcendent why for every what in our lives. But if you do, with the, if you do away with the idea of a transcendent meaning and purpose, then there's, then there's no why. There's no why left. Now, some would say, I, I, I make up my own why, but if you do that, that's not satisfy, satisfying, is it? Because if you do that, then it dies with you to be forgotten. And that's no good. We need a why that is beyond us. But if there is no resurrection, then there is no why that does not die with us or with the next generation or ultimately with the planet when the sun finally goes cold. There's really no meaning, no purpose if there is no resurrection. But secondly, there's a second implication. Paul goes on down in verse 17. He says, Not only that, but also if there is no resurrection, then you're still in your sins. You see that in verse 17? If Christ is not raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Now later on, down in verse 56, Paul says that the sting of death is sin. He returns to this this theme of sin in, in just a little bit. 
And it's an important little phrase there. We're going to focus on it for just a minute. The sting of death is sin, he says, verse 56. And the word sting there refers to a cattle prod. It's a long, sharp stick with a pointy end uh, and that the farmer would use to spur the oxen by inflicting pain. So, you know, jab the oxen and, and kickstart them into plowing the field. And so the metaphor is very helpful. Paul says there's a fear of death that spurs us on in life. The threat of death that is always there, whether we are willing to admit it or not. Ernest Becker won the Pulitzer Prize in 1973 with a book uh, that he called The Denial of Death. And he he argued this. He said uh, that death haunts us, that the fear of death is ultimately the wellspring of all human activity. That it's the primary motivational core of much of what we do is that we're scared to death of death. Death comes along and it, and it pokes us every now and then and we feel the pain of it. Whether it's when you stare into the mirror and you find a few gray hairs that weren't there a couple days ago. Or when you go to the gym and the next day uh, your body is a little sore than you think it ought to be from the little bit of physical activity that you did. Or if you can't find the strength to even get to the gym in the first place. Or if you go to a funeral of someone that you love and it, and it hurts and it's scary and you feel the poke. See, the threat, the threat of death coming after us is always stinging us, Paul says. But look, he says that the sting of death, what is the sting of death? There's a sting in death, but he tells us what that sting is. The sting of death is sin. In other words... The reason we're so afraid of death is because we all know that God is waiting for us on the other side of death and that we've offended him, that he is a righteous judge who is going to mete out punishment. So the sting of death is the fear of meeting God in judgment. Now, this is, I love the Bible. This is really profound psychology here. We're being given some really good psychology. In Genesis, uh, that story at the beginning of our Bible, the man and the woman sin against God, and when he comes looking for them, do you remember what they did? What did they do? You with me? You out there? Hello? They hide, right? They dive into the bushes when they hear his voice because they're, they're scared to death of coming before him because of the guilt of their sin. Now, that's not just a historical story. It's a, it's a bit of psychology there for us. It's a story about, our, about our, our lives, that being face-to-face with God in judgment terrifies us. It reduces us to ash when we even think about it because we're naked. We have no righteousness to cover us, no clothing to cover our nakedness with, and, and so it just, it just terrifies us. The sting of death is sin, but if Christ has not been raised, then Paul goes on to say there, look again at verse 56, that the only strategy for sin is the law then. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And what he means there, law means something like getting religion. Martin Luther, who the, the reformer, described it as an accounting ledger. He says, you know, we, we all, we've all been bad. We're running a deficit. The numbers on our ledger are all in the red. And so what do you do? How do you get out of the red? Well, the law says that you, you set out to do more good than you've done bad. For Luther, that meant becoming a monk, because that's what you did when you got serious about God in the, in the 16th century. Uh, but not only a monk, he chose the, the order of monks that were the, the most strict. He wanted to, you know, he wanted, if he was going to be a monk, he was going to be the best monk he could possibly be. And so he would, he would uh, stay up all night praying. He would fast for days and weeks. He literally, if you know his story, he literally ruined his body. It, his, his quest for holiness affected his health for the rest of his life. But no matter what he did, no matter 
how much he could never get to the place where he felt like he was in the black. And the reason for that is, is this, that the law strategy for sin doesn't work. Paul says the problem is sin. Uh, excuse me. The problem is sin. The solution is not the law. Because law is actually the power behind sin. Do you see that? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. So think about that. Law doesn't get you anywhere. Going to church, trying harder to be a good person, that's not a way to solve the sin problem in your life. All of your doing is, is all you're doing there is strengthening the power of sin. That's what Paul says. The power of sin is the law. In other words, the power behind sin is the belief that your standing with God is based on your performance. You do good and you get good from Him. You, you do bad and you get bad from Him. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And so if you've been bad, then what you should do is just commit to becoming a better person. But that's not enough, you see. You might get a little better. You might get a little better, but you'll be an even bigger sinner than you were before. Because your good works will just be another reason for you to boast in yourself. They'll be just as sinful and, and, and offensive to God as all of the bad stuff you did before. And so if there is no resurrection... We have no battle plan against sin. Sin is raging, and there's nothing we can do about it. We're still in our sins. It still has hold over us. There's no hope for change. There's, there's no power to, be, to become not just better but new. We need, we need new hearts, not just new resolutions. But without resurrection, all we have is what we can muster from ourselves. And so if there's no resurrection, no hope. Life is vain. You're still in your sins. And then lastly, maybe most powerfully, he makes the last argument. He said, if there is no resurrection, down in verse 19, then let's just be honest. I mean, I love the way Paul lays it out here. If there is no resurrection, then Christianity is a waste of time. More than that, it's foolish. If there is no resurrection, if you're a Christian, you should rethink the way you're living your life. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Because... Christianity is a lifestyle of sacrificial love, not self-indulgence, and therefore a lifestyle that's cutting-edge, radical, full of risk-taking, not cautious, prudent, secure, and self-enhancing. For Paul, Christianity meant a life full of imprisonments, (laughs) beatings, sleepless nights, near-death experiences, constant scorn, and radical, radical vulnerability. Man, he's not alone. There is no other Christianity than radical, risk-taking, perilous, sacrificial love that is so costly and so consistent that if there is no life beyond this life, then those who choose to live that way are pitiable fools. C.S. Lewis said that those who have done the most good in this life are those who have thought the most about the next. That is because resurrection promises the recovery to an even greater enjoyment of everything that has been lost for the sake of love for God and others. Christians, true Christians, believe that their joy in resurrection will make up for a thousand losses and self-denials and sacrifices and dangers and risks here for the sake of love. And therefore, if there is no resurrection, if you're here and you're a Christian, you should rethink the way you're living your life. But let me apply this before we move on. And let me talk to those in the room that maybe. May, may not be believers or maybe, you know, searching or, or questioning what they believe. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're betting on no resurrection, 
I just want to ask, are you willing to embrace the implications of that belief? You can't have it both ways. Have the courage of your convictions. Be intellectually honest. That's all I would ask. If you're here and you are a believer, you are a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus, I want to ask you this. Are you all in on the resurrection? Have you pushed all of your chips to the middle of the table? It's a bad analogy, but bear with me. I don't want to make it trite, but have you pushed all in? If not, there's an inconsistency in your life. Christians make decisions on the basis of gain in the next life, not in this life. And so is your life full of risks for love's sake that can only be explained as wise and not foolish because you believe Jesus is alive? So if there is no resurrection, then there are implications. And you see them there, Paul Paul gives them to us. However, let's go on. If there are, if there is resurrection, if, if Jesus is alive and not dead, then there are a whole other set of implications. And I've got three of those too. We're going to be much quicker from here. But first, if there is a resurrection, Paul begins to meditate as he goes along in this passage, then life is not meaningless. At the very end of the passage, look down at verse 58. Paul writes, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In other words, if Jesus is alive, then life is a story. It's headed somewhere. There's a future. You might be in the middle of the story at the moment, but there's a future ahead of you. And if you're a Christian, that future is resurrection. That means that everything that is hard in this life will be healed and made up for. That something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, that nothing will be wasted, that nothing can be lost that will not be made up for. That the Bible says, and this so, I don't know about you, this so comforts me. The Bible says that even the tears that you cry are like seeds that go into the ground, that God is growing into a harvest of joy that will be yours forever. But only because the end of the story is resurrection. Therefore, whatever you do for God, no matter how small, no matter how unsuccessful it might seem, dishes and laundry and dirty diapers and such, they all matter. Everything you do in the Lord matters because Jesus is alive. Therefore, nothing will be forgotten. Do you nothing will be forgotten. It will go on forever and ever and ever. There is eternal significance in the details. I mean, if a butterfly flapping its wings on one continent, as the scientists tell us, can become a tornado two weeks later on another continent, imagine the butterfly effect of small acts of faithfulness and kindness today over a billion million years. We do not labor in vain. But secondly, if there, is, if there is resurrection, if Christ is alive, then if you're in Christ, you don't have to be afraid of death. It does something about the fear of death in you. If you're a Christian, you have no reason to fear facing God on the other side of death. Paul writes in, in Thessalonians, we are not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that we might live with him. And In other words, in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has taken away death's sting by taking away our sins. If the sting of death is sin, then if if in his death and resurrection he takes away our sins, he also takes away death's sting. Which is why Paul says, verse 57, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask, how do you beat sin? How do you beat sin? It's an unfair question. It's a trick question. How do you beat sin? You don't. But Jesus did. And don't miss all of the language of union with Christ in the text. Verses 21 and 22. 
where it says, as through one man came death, so also through a man comes resurrection. For as all, in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. And what, what Paul is saying is, is, every single one of us in the room, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad. What matters is whether you're in Adam or in Christ. Faith is the process of, of relocating your life into Jesus. Faith brings you into Christ. If you're in Christ then, Jesus didn't just die for you because you're united to him. It's even more than that. He didn't just die for you. He died as you. And if Jesus died as you, then you know what that means? It means you won't die. I mean, it's so profound, Paul won't even use the words when he talks, to, when he talks about a Christian's experience of death. He says in Thessalonians that he says, when Christians die, they just go to sleep. I mean, if your faith is in Jesus, you don't die, you just go to sleep. And when you wake up, the reality is, is you're more alive than you were when you closed your eyes. The Bible says that Christians don't, they die, but they don't see death. They die, but in their dying, they don't taste death because Jesus has tasted death for all who believe. And so the experience of death has been changed. Death holds, um, death holds those who live in fear of it in bondage. But if there is resurrection, and if you're in Christ, then it changes your approach to death. You become like Paul in verse 55 here. Do you see what he does? He turns around to death. I mean, it's, it's the fourth quarter. There's two minutes left on the clock. Your team is up by 50, and the, and the crowd starts to chant, overrated, na-na-na-na. Na, 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 na. You with me? That's what he's doing. He's mocking. He's mocking death. He says, you're done. We've won. It's over. You have no authority. You have no power. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philly, lost his wife when... His daughter was a little girl, and uh, he was trying to help her and himself process the loss. He couldn't figure out how to, to put it into words. And then one day, the story, I love the story, they were driving along, and a moving truck, huge moving truck, passed them. And as it passed, the shadow of the, the truck swept over the car that they were, that they were driving in. And it, he said it was like a light bulb came onto him. And he, he turned, his daughter was in the back seat. He turned to her and he said, honey, would you, would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? And his daughter replied, by the shadow, of course, that can't hurt us at all. And then Dr. Barnhart replied, right, if the truck doesn't hit you, but only its shadow, then you're fine. Well, he said it was only the shadow of death that went over your mother. She's actually alive, more alive than you and I are. And that's because 2,000 years ago, the real truck of death hit Jesus. And because death crushed him, and we believe in him, now the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. Therefore, death is not loss. It's gain. It's not the end. It's the beginning of what C.S. Lewis called the real story. He said all of our adventures in this life are really only the cover and the title page, but the day of our death is the beginning of chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. But third, I have a third implication. So if there is resurrection then life is not meaningless. It's full of purpose. We don't labor in vain. If there is resurrection, then the, death of, the fear of death can be undone in your life. Death can die for you. But then third, if there is resurrection, then there's power for change. If Jesus is not in the grave, then where is he? I mean, Christians believe that he was raised and ascended back to heaven. And the text tells us what he's doing now. 
that he's there, verses 24 and 25, it says that right now, what's going on in the world, what's going on in our lives right now, because we serve a Savior who is no longer in the grave, but has come to life with resurrected power and is at the right hand of God with all authority and power in heaven and earth, that he is there destroying every rule and every authority and power until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Do you know what that means? If Jesus is alive, the sin and brokenness in you doesn't stand a chance. If, if he is alive, the sin and brokenness in the world doesn't either. He is patiently but thoroughly undoing all the wrong in you and me and in the world in which we live until the day when he comes again and all things are made new. Listen, the good news for us this morning. Whatever deadness is in you, it is no match for his power. Jesus died as you, and therefore you will not die. He rose as you, and therefore not only will you be raised, but if you're in him, you're already alive with spiritual life. Now let me talk to the Christian and the non-Christian again, just for a minute, and then we'll come to a close. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you say, I don't know if I believe these things, my answer to you would be, don't you want to? Don't you want to believe this is true? You should want to believe this is true. If the resurrection is true, then there's hope for the world. Healing and justice and love will eventually win, but only if what Christians claim is true. Don't you want it to be true? And if you're hearing your, your faith is in Him, I would focus you on verse 58. You should, probably should spend some time meditating on this later today, but look at what he says can be, can be true of us because of these things there in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That is the victory. Verse 57 speaks of the victory that is ours in Jesus. That description is the victory. Steadfast means unwavering, enduring to the end, constancy, having no less energy for the work when things are going poorly as, as you do when things are going well. Being immovable. Don't you want to be? It means solid. It means not being intimidated, not being wishy-washy, not being motivated internally and not by changing circumstances. There are eternal, excuse me, internal emotional reserves that get you through the up and downs. You're like a rock. And then you're always abounding in the work of the Lord. You're overflowing with selflessness Always, all the time, every day, there's an excess of energy in your life for doing God's work because you know that your labor is not in vain. You know for sure that what you're doing matters. You feel the eternal significance and impact of even the small parts of your life. Anybody else want that? Wouldn't that be great? That's what life like is like, Paul says, when the sting of death is taken away. So, if there is no resurrection, then life is meaningless. There's no power for change. If you're a Christian, you should rethink the way you're living your life. But if there is, if there is resurrection, then life, this life is not all there is. There are moral absolutes we have to come in line with. There is power in the world for personal and social transformation. So, if you're not a Christian, then you should rethink the way you're living your life too. But Paul doesn't leave us floating between these two options, okay? I rushed into this in the first service, but I want you to see... He doesn't leave us floating back and forth between these two. He says, verse 20, and this is the Christian hope, but in fact Christ has been raised. 
That is the claim of Christianity. It's why we all are wearing pastels this morning. Because, not because it's spring, but because there, there's hope. Because something has changed in the world. The resurrection is not a matter of conjecture and opinion. For Christians, it's a matter of fact. In fact, Christ has been raised. But when we come to believe in God, let me just finish with this. There are three kinds of reasons for believing or disbelieving when it comes to, to belief in God. There are personal reasons. A lot of times there are parts of your story that, that influence whether you believe or not. There are social reasons. Uh, the, the, uh, there, there's an academic discipline called the sociology of knowledge, which says that you tend to find most plausible the beliefs of people whom you need, like your family and people you grew up with, or people that you want to like you, that you tend to believe or disbelieve uh, based on social support. And then there are intellectual reasons, too. You find the arguments compelling, and you believe, or you don't, and you, and you don't. But nobody believes purely on intellectual reasons. There are always personal and social reasons, too. It's always a combination of the three. So I'd like to finish, if you would allow me. It'll take just a couple minutes uh, to give you an intellectual reason, a personal reason, and a social reason in that order for why I, I am staking my life on the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. So first, first I have intellectual reasons. Uh, you know, it's often assumed that to believe in Christianity you have to turn off your brain, and that just isn't true. There are good, solid, historical evidences for the resurrection. I mean, the reason so many secular people believe, struggle to believe is not because there isn't evidence. It's because of the presuppositions in their secularism and how it causes them to, to view the evidence. So secularism doesn't present a challenge to the evidence of Christianity. The evidence of Christianity challenges the assumptions of secularism. So the starting point of secular thought is something like there are no miracles and therefore this stuff is silly. But what about the claim that there are no miracles? Doesn't that need to be proven? Do you see... If you're a skeptic, let me say that there's at least enough historical, archaeological evidence to cause you to be skeptical of your skepticism. These stories were not late additions into the Christian historical record. Fifteen to twenty years after the resurrection, Paul was writing as if these were, things were true. It's established on the basis of eyewitness testimony. Over 500 people claim to have seen Jesus post-resurrection. In the Gospels, the first witnesses were women, which is astounding because women weren't even allowed to testify in court. They weren't considered credible witnesses. So that part of the Gospel story would create skepticism. And if so, why not leave the women out unless you're just recording how it really happened? It is philosophically implausible that the disciples would have come up with the idea of resurrection on their own. Scholars say nothing in the Greco-Roman world or in Jewish thought would have led to uh, the theology that came out of the, the Christian church. So if it was a scam, who came up with the idea to begin with? And then there's the record of the growth of the Christian movement in the first century. What explains the explosion of faith all over the Roman Empire? Why would men willingly go to their deaths for something they knew was a lie? There's lots of intellectual proof, lot, many intellectual reasons. But secondly, not only intellectual reasons, but I have personal reasons too. I was raised in a Christian home. I've been in church consistently my entire life. I've got a master's degree in my office in biblical studies. I told the first service, uh, which means I have, I'm a mas I have a master's degree in BS. Um, and I still struggle with doubt. As a culture, we are skeptical about faith, but not skeptical about our skepticism. We don't doubt our doubts. 
And in the past, there was much greater humility about our ability to understand the universe. But as technology increases, so does our certainty, we, our perceived certainty about the world. And that's a bad thing. If we know God, it's not because we have the powers to. The, the, world, the universe is just too big to think that. If we know God, it's only because he's revealed himself to us. That's the only shot. And so I believe that the only thing that makes sense is that Christianity is revelation because, and I'll tell you why, really the, 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 point, the point for me, I believe Christianity is revelation because I have no other explanation for the person of Jesus. It's the person of Jesus that gets me. I have no other explanation for the person of Jesus than that he is who he says he is. I tend to move away from vulnerability towards safety. I've noticed you do too. But he moves away from safety towards vulnerability. I tend to be quiet when speaking will get me in trouble and to speak when I should be quiet. But when it's going to get him in a mess, he speaks. And when he's being falsely accused at the trial in his last week, he's silent. When I'm under a lot of pressure, I shut down and stop loving others. But the more pressure he's under, the more he loves. I've, I can tell you, I've never met anyone like him. And I think the conclusion I've come to is that there is no one else like him. And so there are personal reasons too, but then lastly, social reasons as well. And I would just say to you, the resurrection seems to be imprinted on our imagination because we can't seem to quit telling resurrection stories. Dying, sacrificial love undoes death. I mean, in all the stories that we tell, those who die a sacrificial death and loving others don't stay dead. Think about it. Beauty and the Beast. Frozen. I mean, just about any of the Disney movies, this is true. Harry Potter, Aslan the Lion. I mean, I geek out about this stuff. You guys make fun of me, but there's a reason there's a reason why. There's a reason why we, we keep telling these stories because we seem, listen, we seem to inherently know that sacrificial death brings life. And there's only, I only, there's only one explanation. It must be true. In the morning, the great thing that I get to do, the privilege that I have to say to you this morning is, it is. Christ is risen. Amen? That's our hope. And so let's pray. So, Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Uh, thank you for the way that you pursue us, that you, you just don't allow us to remain lazy in the way we think, that you really do want us to, to wrestle through the implications of what we've come to celebrate this morning. You want us to, to measure them out and be thoughtful, to not hide behind our inconsistencies and, and, and to not um, claim uh, to know something when, in fact, uh, underneath, we're full of doubt. Well, you, want, you want us to just be honest with you because you can handle it. And so I do pray, whether believer or non-believer, where, wherever we are on the, on the spectrum of faith and skepticism and doubt, that we would have the courage to just be honest this morning and think out the implications. But then we pray that even in these last moments that you would come in all of our doubting and of our fear, of our uncertainty about these things, that you would, by your Spirit, bring home to our hearts the truth and the reality of the empty grave. And that it would unleash in us a song, a song of praise and thanksgiving, and, and, and that, we would, that we would sing of that truth because it is, it is the bedrock hope of our life. It is the thing that everything else depends upon. If Jesus is not raised, there is no hope. We're still in our sins. All of life is meaningless. But if, in fact, Christ was raised, then there's a song that should fill our whole lives. And so open our lips and open our mouths now as we sing.
Uh, may that song come out of us. May it come gushing out of us the way life and power and beauty comes gushing out of the empty grave. So that you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great job singing, church. Uh, there is such hope and such victory in those words, which is why I think it's so powerful. But I, I just want to say, no matter how dark, no matter how deep and how dark the shadow of death might be looming over your life, no matter what deadness, what brokenness you might be up against in yourself or in someone else, the promise of the resurrection is that it's no match for Jesus. It's just no match for him. And so we can sing like that, sing of hope like that, sing of victory like that. And that really is what these words are. They're, they're words of hope and promise uh, of even in our weakness, uh, God's strength is sufficient. Uh, even in our brokenness, the power and promise of the resurrection is true. And so receive these words and go full of hope today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forever, men. Amen. Amen. Happy Easter. Go in peace.